episode of being human delighted to say i am here with mr james priest he is the co-creator co-developer of something called sociocracy 3.0 or s3 as i believe it's referred to and for those who've never heard of that uh we will certainly get into it i've known james and, and his work um around agile circles for a number of years uh I, i've seen him speak and and so i'm i'm thrilled to have James here on on the show today. Understand more about uh, S three and how it can make a difference in people's lives and organisations. So, James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be here. So, I guess we should first of all uh, just address a, a definition of of what this thing is: sociocracy three point zero for people who've who've never heard of it. And then perhaps we can wind back a bit in terms of your your involvement with with getting this. Uh, defined and, and developed. Sure. Okay. Well, um, one way to think about S3 is as a menu of human behavior patterns. Um, so your podcast is aptly named Being Human. And an area of interest I have is looking at human behavior, which really, in a way, gives us an insight to the sum of lessons learned from those that came before us along the evolutionary line. And behaviors can lead to outcomes that are more or less preferable. Sometimes a certain behavior can be suitable in one context and yet completely inappropriate in another and so on. Um, so S3 is an inquiry into which behaviors, or another way of thinking about it is patterns, like processes, practices, and guidelines, are, are observable in human collaborative contexts um, and have proven so useful over time that they've prevailed and evolved um, because of their relevance in certain contexts for enabling people to organize and collaborate together in effective ways. Right. And, and the, well, well, the way I think of it is that it's like a, almost like a map, isn't it? Of, yeah, of, of these different processes, practices, approaches that you, that one can study and then adopt people place to um think from and, and it gives them a guidance on how they might uh seek to encourage these patterns to emerge in their environment yeah and why i use the term menu is because it helps to clarify you don't go into a restaurant and order everything on the menu but you choose a restaurant on the basis of a particular need or a desire that you have and then you select from the menu the things that are most suitable or preferable to you in that moment. Um, many people think of systems like Sociocracy 3.0 as they might other systems. And in the world of Agile, you've got Safe and Scrum and Less. And um, in the world like of Sociocracy derivatives, you've got the sociocratic circle method and holacracy and others as well. Um, and so people tend to think that S3 is a particular methodology or approach or framework um, but it's more granular than that and that's important to understand it's it's much more a set of options some of them like quite minute in a way and specific that people can pull from according to their their particular um, organizational needs um, and so um, what's relevant with that is that if everything's working just fine as it is, there's really no need to change anything and therefore don't look to S3. But if you find that the, the sum of your current approaches are in some way failing to bring about the results you would expect or wish to see, 
and you're at that moment of acknowledgement that that is the case, uh, then S3 provides a number of options across multiple aspects of organization that could be worthwhile to consider. Right. And, and I definitely want to learn more about what some of these uh, approaches are. But to wind back, James, when did you, know, when did you first get involved in this? What sparked your interest? You know, what, what's the genesis of your engagement with this? Wow. Okay. Um, well, I came across the term sociocracy quite by chance, actually, in 2001. And at that point, I was working with um, youth in the UK, uh, children and young people at risk of social exclusion. And so um, I was looking for a location to develop a center for holistic education for these kids and contracting to local education authority and social services. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I ended up at 20, I think I was 27 at the time, inheriting this uh, residential center and community in the Southwest of England. There was eight properties there and a 24 bed residential center from the owner who, who remained the owner of this place, but she was leaving uh, to uh, develop a new life in Vermont with her, uh, her new husband. Um, and she was also a little disenfranchised by the consequence of her efforts over 17 years to develop this center, which was, it was, it was designed as a spin-off of um, Findhorn, which is quite a famous spiritual community. Oh, in, in Scotland. In Scotland, exactly. Yeah. And it was called the Beacon Center. And she saw it like a, a kind of beacon or a satellite of this. And the center was defined as a center for right relationship and personal and planetary transformation. Um, and what was interesting about this, this particular community and others I've seen like it actually was that um, despite these good intentions, the people were at war and there was enormous conflict in the community there. Um, so she, she really felt like she needed to move on. Um, and coincidentally, I ended up having the opportunity to move there with my then partner at the time to work with both developing the business there, but also to work with the conflict in the community. And so that was an area I had an interest in at the time around uh, interpersonal relationships, intrapsychic development. Um, Sorry, say that again. Intra intrapsychic development. So, wow. like, you know, the, the interpersonal between people yeah. and the intrapsychic is like with the different aspects within ourselves, if you like. Okay, intrapsychic. Yeah? So, okay. like, personal uh, development, yeah. one might yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and transforming conflict into creative opportunities to learn and grow. So she invited me, and I remember her words very clearly. James, bring everything you've got, and there's two things I'd like you to do. One is to learn about nonviolent communication, and the other is to learn about the sociocratic circle method, um, because I think these two things are going to be essential for you working with the community here. And so I'd heard of nonviolent communication. Sociocracy was like, soci what? I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, and with a, a kind of clumsy internet search at the time, and I was not tech savvy at all, still not, in fact, um, I found one web page in English describing the sociocratic circle method, basics of it, in a co-housing community in the United States. And she handed me a hand typed on a typewriter, you know, with like correction, the, the white correction paper in places, yeah. description of the sociocratic circle method that she got from Australia. And so with those uh, two pages, um, 
we experimented for two years in this community with the sociocratic circle method or aspects of it. And it totally turned things around. I mean, we, we went from you know, a really dysfunctional community to the point where there was even violence, you know, physical violence at times in this place wow. to the majority of people really working together quite effectively uh, to develop the business there and also to develop the community there as well. Um, so I was quite sold. I, I think we did a terrible job of understanding things. We did a terrible job of applying them, but relative to what was happening previously, it was an enormous improvement. And uh, right. so that set me on the road of advocating for this and inquiring into it more. Um, but it wasn't really until 2009 that I started to more actively put myself out there as somebody who was advocating for this thing, sociocracy. Um, by 2013, 14, I was working throughout Europe, helping people learn about the sociocratic circle method quite extensively, maybe in the nonprofit sector, social sector. Um, and then uh, 2014 is when I met Bernard, and that's where the seeds for S3 began. So. Right, right. And this is Bernard Bockelbrink, if I'm... Bernard Bockelbrink, yes. Yeah, Bock yes. Bockelbrink, right, yeah, yeah. your, your co-developer. Co um, yeah. But I'm 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 sort of placing you in that scene in the West of England, and you've you've inherited this community, and you've read the, these typewritten uh, typewriter written pages. What what are the first couple of things you try, and and how did it go? Yeah, well, the first thing was there's a concept in well they they call it a, a principle in the sociocratic circle method, but we refer to it as a concept in S three, uh, or rather a principle of um, consent and a concept of objection. Um, and so if you look at the history of sociocracy, the term was first coined by August Comte in 1851, approximately. And he was reflecting on the way in which nations were governed and argued for the need to integrate more of the scientific method into the decision-making processes of government in order to better meet the needs of the people. Okay? So he was advocating for reasonableness, for empiricism. No, and, and basically arguing that the more feudal way of ruling societies on the basis of ideology or strength uh, were inadequate, and there was a need to elevate ourselves to bring more, uh, more of a rational, reasonable, and empirical approach into how we make and evolve agreements based on the actuality of what can be observed and what can be proven and disproven and, and so forth. Um, so that community that I was involved in, and myself personally, in the kind of communities I was connected to at that time, were very much kind of rooted in this move towards more egalitarian ways of organizing together, of living together. I was coming from a quite traditional background of, uh, you know, just in terms of the culture I grew up in, quite hierarchical. I'd worked as project manager. I'd had my own business. I'd been a manager and not a particularly nice one, I think, in that respect. Um, and so this whole inquiry into how do we create fairer working environments, more inclusive working environments was quite a priority for me and for others. One of the problems with that is that, well, you know, one aspect of that is seeking consensus in decision-making. It's like inclusivity and this idea we're all equal. And the fact is we're not all equal. You know, we all are more or less advantaged or disadvantaged depending on the, um, on the context. And when you aim to find absolute agreement between everyone, you 
ironically, end up diminishing the scope of options because you have to kind of compromise and lobby and you know, spend an enormous amount of time sometimes designing some kind of proposition that nobody's going to reject. And you know, in consensus, without any constraints, people can block a decision for any reason, including no reason at all, just personal opinion, preference, malevolence, or whatever else it might be. So what fascinated me, one thing was this idea of consent, because it was saying that you know, a decision or a proposal would be good enough in the absence of a reason that demonstrates how proceeding in that way would in some way lead to consequences you want to avoid or some kind of exposure to risks that would be unpreferable to be exposed to, or an argument that demonstrates some kind of worthwhile way to improve. So in the absence of any perspective that can observe something like that or anticipate something like that right now, the proposal is probably good enough. So the pivot is from seeking to reach agreement to seeking to check whether there's any reasons not to. Is there any reason why this isn't good enough right now? So it cuts a lot of slack, you see, and it, it elevates people beyond their personal preference and brings the focus much more to what's the purpose of the proposal. You know, why are we deciding this? What's the outcomes we're intending for this to achieve? And does this look good enough and absent of any worthwhile way to improve right now? And if so, how about we run with it, learn from experience, and then evolve things as necessary based on what we learn? So it's enormously freeing, you know, in a group of people who are seeking fairness and equality. In S3, would say what it does is it enables equivalence. So it enables people affected by decisions to influence them, but it constrains that influence by saying on the basis of reasons for doing so. And those reasons are qualified by arguments that demonstrate consequences you want to avoid, exposure to risks you want to avoid, or worthwhile ways to improve. Yeah. And that, that was a game changer in that community. Yeah. The one other thing that we took was the concept of circles. So an S3 circle is a pattern. It's a type of team where you clarify the responsibilities and the scope of authority of whomever takes responsibility for that domain of work. And within that domain, the team members not only handle operations, but they share responsibility for governance within that domain as well. And what I mean by governance is making and evolving agreements that will govern future decisions and actions within that domain. You know, it's decisions that have significance not just now, but in time, because they're constraining somehow the banks of the river and guiding the creative flow. And so in a traditional organization with a management hierarchy, very often governance of a domain or domains lies with the manager, right? Uh, in a circle, you might still have somebody in a leadership position or not, um, but governance is handled collaboratively by the whole team. Okay, so there are various patterns for making and evolving agreements as a team. And the advantage being that you enrich the decision making. If you're applying the principle of consent and the concept of objection, then you're constraining the potential for people to block unless there's good reasons for uh, doing so. Um, and you develop more ownership of decisions among the team because it's our decision, not your decision that I agreed to or disagreed to, and so on. So I think these two things in combination were what were most powerful. Um, 
And alongside that, perhaps just a little more consideration in who we selected to take responsibility for what within the organization on the strength of the reason for doing so. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and what did you find personally coming into this, as you said, with a background of more traditional hierarchical processes, you've got this, this community you've inherited, like what were some of the early challenges with it that, that you found personally in getting it going and implementing? Well, I think a personal challenge for me at that time, just in general, was being 27 years old, ending up inheriting this system, you know, and, and responsibility for that community somehow, with the majority of people being senior to me. Right. Um, and additionally, because there was some bad feeling from some people towards the owner of the community, she had a, a close family member still living there as well. And that was also a difficult situation for this other person, because obviously I'd stepped in and suddenly had been given this authority um, that perhaps they would have enjoyed to have had instead. Okay. So I think these kind of areas was where it was most challenging for me personally. And I think the, the thing that made that tolerable was the fact that we were able to put the emphasis on developing the residential center there and developing the community. And by focusing on specific organizational needs and needs within the community and having processes that enabled us to be able to make and evolve agreements in relation to that in a collaborative way, it really helped to kind of take the point out of that issue, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it helped to depersonalize things for others and also for me as well. So I think that was probably the biggest area of the biggest area of challenge for me, which is, you know, on, on a bigger level, this is about a sense of entitlement and agency and permission, right? And I, I see this a lot in organizations to this day is if there's some unclarity on what I'm responsible for, what I have authority for, um, where the limits are to that, whom I need to consult in that case and or whom is worthwhile to consult in the case that decisions I'm making will affect others, then I might find myself either much more in, uncertain around whether or not to act and or a bit indifferent and disregarding somewhat other people who might be affected by what it is I decide or do or say. Um, and so there's something kind of liberating in clarifying more the contractual agreements between one another in terms of who's responsible for what and and a freeing I was freed up somehow to decide and influence in areas of the organization and other people were freed up too and always in the case where something I was doing or another was doing that was somehow creating new impediments or missed opportunities in the system then we were developing a culture where people felt confident to speak up and say mm. because they anticipated that doing so wouldn't lead to some kind of rebuttal but rather a genuine curiosity and oh what is it you're seeing about the consequence of how things are currently being done by me or by others what can we learn by that and is this an area where we might discover a way to improve yeah so um yeah, so this this really helped to smooth the way for me at that young age, in a way, to be in that position of responsibility and, and some volatility as well, and 
legacy latency, you know, from what had been happening before. Yeah. I'm I'm just admiring the scene in my mind of, of you as a 27-year-old sort of greeting these people and saying, okay, we're gonna have this this new process for making decisions. This is how it's gonna this is how it's gonna go. You're 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 sort of assuming this new position and implementing a completely new way of working at the same time. Yeah, there was there was one advantage there that I had actually, and that was the fact that had they not chosen to, that was also acceptable. You know, okay. part of my part of my brief was to move things forward and over time to bring more clarity to people's decision to be there and whether or not that was an appropriate place for them to remain or not. And I, again, I mean, that, that fits with a, a pattern I see often these days in existing organizations when there's a moment of realization that the current way of doing things is inadequate somehow and could be improved. And, you know, there's several ways to go at that moment. Um, but, uh, Oftentimes in those systems, there's some kind of authority lying with some individual or group. And I think a big error sometimes can just be to like throw down all the walls and try suddenly to shift to this kind of egalitarian, we'll all decide together approach. It doesn't work very well. Um, I think there's merit sometimes in taking advantage of the fact that people are, whether they, they appreciate it or not, they're kind of conditioned to the current reality of some kind of authority and them having a place within that. And so using that moment as an opportunity to put forward new ways of working that are demonstrably preferable, not just in terms of the effectiveness of the organization, but just in terms of evolving the general level of humanity within the way in which things are done in the organization as well, that for many people is quite convincing and reassuring. No, and um, yeah, so certainly I used that moment unconsciously. I didn't do it in an intentional way, but yeah. retrospectively looking back, I had that advantage to be able to say, okay, we're, we're moving from this to this. This is how it's going to be. Uh, recontracting with people if they wished to be on board with that or not, um, and kind of putting in place those basic constraints, like rules of the new game, if you like, before we started. Mm. And then within those constraints, people were free to decide and act. Yeah. So it's like with freedom comes responsibility. So in a way, we, we gave people more freedom and influence, but first of all, clarified very much the scope of responsibilities and the constraints on people's authority to influence by themselves. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really important point because that, at first blush, blush. I think a lot of people can come across systems like S three and, and agile. Sometimes it, you know, and it can it can feel, well, this is just yeah, a free for all, right? This is will just lead to anarchy. This, yeah, but but the reality of these systems, in my experience, if if they're implemented with integrity, is very is very different and much more like you describe. Actually, the the the, the guidance is much clearer, um, responsibilities are much clearer accountabilities are much clearer right it, it's it, you actually inject order into the system yeah exactly the way I, I i see it too and i see people sometimes you know they can push back a little bit on the idea of oh this is this is kind of too constraining or this is complicated there's many things to learn I, I think actually what's most difficult is the cognitive dissonance of confronting new ways of working when you're so entrenched in old ways of doing things yeah um, and 
you know, often the pain lies more in the unlearning of those old ways than it does in learning something new. Mm -hmm. I think people forget as well sometimes that we've all spent our whole lives learning to do it the way our ancestors did it, or learning to develop our own bespoke ways to kind of polarize with how our ancestors did it because we saw what what a mess they created. But either way, we're kind of standing on one leg often, you know, and mm. to to recognize that sometimes unlearning some of that stuff, or at least disidentifying from it, making it conscious and exploring and then moving into areas of practice that perhaps are somewhat new, takes some time and effort. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that can seem a little overwhelming for people especially in moments when anyway, the consequences of their past behaviors are bringing about results they'd rather not be seeing. And under the stress of it, they generally fall back even harder on those habitual ways of doing things rather than have the insight to realize, wait, maybe I need to hit pause here, step out of what I'm doing and take a look for alternatives that could help me improve. Right. Yeah. And you, did you see some of that at the community as you moved forward with it? Um, I see it more now in mm. organizations that I'm working with. I mean, in the community, I think people were so desperate on some level without wishing to express that. But really, you know, some of those people had made a decision some years before to commit their lives to supporting this center. And they'd been very attracted to this idea of right relationship and personal planetary transformation. And so there was a lot of vulnerability and grief among people there around how could it be that we came for this and we've got that okay. instead, you know? Yeah. Um, so almost, it doesn't quite, it almost sounds like the cliche of the, the hippie community that's gone, you know, toxic, right? I mean, that, that might be yeah, well, I, I've got some thoughts about that because it was a question I had at the time and I've, I worked in the kind of the zone of communities and social, social groups and, Nonprofits for some years after that. And I saw quite frequently, actually, that very well-intentioned people would come together with these quite high ideals, and they would end up actually generating some of the very things that they were seeking to change in the world. And I, I really thought a lot about that over the years. Like, why, why is it that that happens? And my conclusion, for now at least, is that you know, we're all attracted to different things for reasons that are often beyond just what we're conscious of. And so, you know, if you want to do good in the world, then perhaps there's experiences you had in the past that were negative somehow, and you're motivated to seek to generate environments where others are less likely to be exposed to such things in the future as well. And there's a, there's a good intention in that. You know? um, but at the same time, um, there's not necessarily an experiential understanding of how to really work with those kinds of issues. You know, you're more in a defensive state and one of avoidance rather than one of meeting and transforming the things that you say need to change in the world. And so in the case of, you know, a center for right relationship and personal planetary transformation, I saw a lot of people there, I could include myself in that, a little bit disenfranchised and um, hurt from failed relationships and conflicts in relationships that were difficult for them to kind of figure out and, 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 and uh, determine other ways of, of relating in the future. And so they came to this place 
assuming that somehow this would be a place where they wouldn't have to confront those demons anymore. And Magic actually, oil. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you you can't you can't get around these things. You have to move through them. You have to live through them. Yeah. In my opinion, you have to develop the wisdom to be able to face those kind of situations that can catalyze some of those challenges and conflicts and be able to work through them in a new way, in a different way to the way that you did before. And that's yeah. where you develop the learning. And that's with that learning comes wisdom. And with that wisdom comes the capacity to support others to move through those challenges as well, you see? And yeah. so I saw this a lot with nonprofits, especially, you know, charitable organizations that really well-meaning people, quite egalitarian focused, you know, so coming together with this idea, we're all equal, shouldn't have too much hierarchy. We shouldn't like overexpress our power and influence, and we're going to do good in the world, ending up actually like generating the very situations within their community that they were saying they wanted to transform. And I, I think in a way that's like a, it's like a, a hidden blessing. It's like, it's the wisdom the wisdom of the universe saying, okay, if you really want to help here, you know, yeah. then I'm going to help you to have an experience that's going to give you the wisdom you need to genuinely better go out there and make a difference to these things in the world. Yeah. And you see what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. The way I relate to that is through my own trauma work and the, how we unconsciously recreate our past traumas. Um, and it's almost like we recreate we, we them to give ourselves the opportunity to work through those parts yep. of us that are unhealed. But unless we, we recognize that that's the pattern that we're in, we don't actually get the opportunity <laughs> to do the healing work. We just repeat the cycle unconsciously. Um, exactly. So I, I, I relate to it from that frame. But, yeah. Totally. It's, it's, a perf it's a perfect analogy. But yeah, we're, we're talking about the same thing for sure. Yeah. 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 No, and, I, and it took me a while. I mean, it took probably all of my 20s and well into my 30s until i started doing the deeper work to recognize you know that the extent to which i was i was doing it and then magically as you do the healing work those situations just stop showing up in your life right there's there's no need exactly. for like the universe or if you believe it's that way or you yourself unconsciously recreate them yeah yeah exactly right exactly yeah. right yeah. yeah or you think you work through it and then you go around the spiral yeah, exactly. and there's and a more subtle again, level and it's coming up again yeah totally. you counter yeah, it in a like, slightly different way yeah 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 Chiron was the wounded healer you know so it's like we can do good in the world but we do good through like being able to be with our own vulnerability and embrace mm. our own wound yeah. yeah yeah and i can and i can recognize how the practices you're describing can help with that because it because of the, the nature of the way it surfaces issues i mean i've not yeah. experienced those sociocracy 3.0, but I have experienced agile practices, which I suspect are very similar, and they have that effect of bringing issues to the surface. Totally, yeah, and inviting them, right? Because, yeah. you know, actually, that's why I've got this um, picture of the elephants in the room. Right. You know, because it's, it's very easy to live with elephants in the room for our whole lives and not acknowledge that they're there mm. right behind us. But um, to develop that level of, well, safety or... That level of appreciation for the benefits of acting on niggles, bringing consciousness to situations that are perhaps uncomfortable for whatever reasons, and being able to like process that together in an organizational context to look at if there's anything to learn from that and if there's anything to do about it, is super helpful. You know, it's like uh, it's like in the human system, we've got the, the nervous system, and if I 
stand on a on a needle you know i need the rest of my body to help out with dealing with that you know mm. um but i you know oftentimes in organizational systems people tend to just like numb themselves or ignore or just complain about these situations that are problematic forever <laughs> instead of saying hey wait a minute why am i experiencing some tension here what is it that's going on what can i see can i describe it objectively is it relevant and if it is how do i bring that into the consciousness of the organizational system so we can do something prioritize it and do something about it yeah um yeah you know that this on this topic of um the trauma work and why it is well-intentioned people bring about the very thing they seek to avoid maybe it's helpful to say going back to that original question what kind of first brought me into sociocracy or what caught my attention so um in my mid-20s i started working with a methodology called voice dialogue it was it's a it's a a methodology for facilitating different aspects of the psyche like it's based around the idea of subpersonalities or selves and this idea that the the psyche isn't singular it's like multiple and you only have to look at your daily inner contradictions to <laughs> recognize this you know or how you might present when you're going to, for an interview with somebody and the stakes are really high versus when you're with a beloved or when you're playing with your child or so on you know there's different aspects of us that express and and the basic uh, psychological model behind it is called psychology of selves and the aware ego. And when I discovered this work, I was so fascinated because what I came to realize was that who I believed myself to be was a sum of parts of me that throughout my life had had permission and or proven valuable in getting my needs met. Mm. You know, the most fundamental one being just connection, like human connection and well-being and basic nourishment, human basic meeting of human needs. Um, and the theory is that as we develop, certain aspects of ourselves that we naturally express are received in some kind of negative way or lead to negative consequences. And as part of our, our development in our young years, we tend to identify with those behaviors that serve and disown somewhat those behaviors that don't serve. And the idea being that by the time we reach adulthood, whom we know ourselves to be is a kind of sum of these primary selves that serve some kind of purpose and, and were, were permitted somehow. And they're kind of caring for the vulnerable child. And on the other side are all of these aspects of ourselves that somehow were detrimental to our well-being. And they either get squashed down and come out in those quiet moments when nobody's looking or they just get disowned. And projected onto other people instead and mm. like for me like a good example there was that i was very identified with pleasing others taking responsibility for things uh, even if others couldn't perfectionism knowing things uh working hard you know these kinds of things and so i had really disowned those aspects of myself that were more self-centric self-pleasing caring for myself self over others uh imperfect indifferent not knowing you know being open to the mysteries of the universe right lazy bumming around on the beach you know these kinds of things yeah anyway that that work was an inquiry into those identifications and over time getting to know about those and disidentifying from them and 
making a more conscious relationship to my vulnerability so that these parts didn't have to automatically jump in every time I was trying to avoid being vulnerable, but I could just feel my vulnerability instead. And that gave me access to some of these other sides. And as you were saying, I found through that journey, I attracted less and less those extremities in other people in my relationships, you know, yeah. the things that I judged negatively or overly adored. As I integrated that more in myself, and I found myself much more equipped to meet the diversity of perspectives and opinions and positions that people were coming from in the world. Anyway, why that's relevant, I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that's relevant. We could spend a whole conversation just unpacking that because it's completely fascinating and, and revealing. Um, was when I discovered sociocracy, and I saw that when a group of people agreed to come together to explore an issue and to explore how they might respond to that in some way. Mm. And there's an open invitation for people to step forward if they see any reasons why a particular proposition might lead to problems and so on, or there's a way for it to be improved. Unwittingly, people are contracting to agree one to like bring themselves whichever self or selves they're expressing from in that perspective but also to accommodate others showing up sometimes in quite different selves and quite different perspectives yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so you know in in decision making often where people get bottlenecked is they crash into each other on the basis of their ideas and sometimes those ideas are rooted in quite fundamentalist points of view which yeah. are polarized and for which there's often an equally relevant, albeit apparently quite opposite, perspective to be had as well. And I thought, well, that's fascinating because you've got this method coming into environments where people might not be that kind of psychologically kind of informed or yeah. even interested in this kind of yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. And yet somehow everybody is being invited to and contracting to at least be reasonable, which tends to transcend that more fundamentalist ideological point of view, give space to it so people can express from it. But at the same time, they also need to disidentify from it to listen and really receive others as well. And I thought that's amazing because it's, it's facilitating a more integral consciousness among groups of people in the circle through practicing the principle of consent and using this concept of objections. And I saw that and I see that on, on a daily basis. And I think that's fantastic because I personally was deeply motivated to be doing that work for myself and supporting others to do it. Very concerned about the state of polarization in the world and the problems that arise from a more binary worldview and seeing that consent decision-making in a group was one way of facilitating this more integral perspective, elevate people beyond their fundamentalist points of view towards a more trying, more nuanced and high resolution perspective and with better outcomes in terms of decisions because it tended to harness more diverse perspectives where the whole was greater than the sum of those parts. So it's yeah. a kind of side topic, but that was the thing that really got me. That's what yeah. really led me down the path of sociopathy. Yeah, no, I completely relate to that. It's, it's kind of a, a, or a, a stealth therapy or at the very least a sort of stealth personal development that this style of working engenders. It reminds me, I had, uh, I don't know if you come across a company called 10 Pines in Argentina, who run no. a very open, you know, style of, I don't know to what extent they're inspired by sociology, but it sounds, you know, overlaps certainly with, with the work that you're doing. 
And I asked him, what does he do for leadership development, you know, in the organization? He says, well, we, first of all, we don't really relate to having leaders here. Everybody's a citizen. Um, nice. And the processes themselves develop people as leaders. So we don't feel the need for any extra development of people. Simply by participating in our culture, people develop themselves as, as well, as he would say, as citizens. Um, so which, which challenges what you're nice. saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind is we had um, Sally McCutcheon on the, on the program, who's a, who's a pioneer with holacracy in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And she, she thought it's very important to be effective in holacracy. And I know that's different to sociocracy, but that um, to work on yourself, like the, mm-hmm. the number one, <laughs> yeah. But from her perspective, be effective in working with holacracy um, for, for an indi- individual, the number one priority is for that person to be working. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, where I'm going with that is in the earlier years, because I was very much involved in that area more of personal development, consciousness work and so on. Um, that was very much the angle that I was coming from. Um, I met a woman, Diana Leaf Christian, in 2011, I think. Uh, she's a woman from the United States who specialized in communities, like intentional communities. She wrote a couple of books, Creating a Life Together, and there's one other, I, I forget what the title of the book is called. Um, she did a, an analysis of 200 plus communities that were successful with the question, what are the core qualities that are visible in all of these communities that are necessary in order for these communities to thrive? And she identified three aspects. She said one of them was community glue. And what she meant by that was just this sense of togetherness, spending time together, celebrating, enjoying, appreciating, uh, and so on. Um, Another was group process, like having in place ways for handling things, issues when they came up and so on. And the third one was organizational management. And she saw that the Achilles heel in most intentional community settings was the organizational management. And the consequences of that were that it began to impede on the sense of well-being and appreciation people have for one another, which then necessitated more group process. And in the worst case, often groups would just end up processing all the time, not enjoying being together anymore. And meanwhile, the whole organization would disintegrate because it wasn't being managed well, if at all. And so she helped me to get a little clearer on the fact that probably in a lot of organizational settings where things are challenging, the most valuable place to make an intervention would be in terms of the organizational management first. Because if you can improve that, then it tends to have multiple consequences, many of which most people can't anticipate before. Um, including like clearing up 90% of the issues that impede people in terms of their interpersonal relationships with one another and their sense of well-being for themselves. Um, and then what's remaining, you can process. And with the, the space around that, enjoy being together, working together, celebrating, you know, mm. appreciating it, being grateful and, and so on, you see? Um, so that's where I, I'm kind of interested because I, I used to lead with the importance of personal development. And now I, I never say it. 
I think, like I said, I never say it, and I work mainly in a corporate context. However, um, people in their journey invariably come to a moment of acknowledging that for themselves. Mm. Yeah, the most unlikely of people, people to whom, if you ever mentioned the word personal development, would just like scowl at you and think you were some hippie about to convert them into something or other. Or you know, you're 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 a Christian, right? So you know, they, they're just trying to. In, indoctrinate them into some kind of religious perspective or um and yet you know retrospectively people come to realize oh wow you know i see actually myself you know i see i'm discovering through this journey unexpectedly how i show up you know how i habitually behave mm. and i'm coming to realize one like the inappropriateness of that sometimes or the inadequacy of that and secondly, I'm asking the question, well, why do I even behave in that way? Especially when it's bringing about results so I'd rather, rather not see. So uh, I'm, I, I'm super delighted about that because that's my deepest passion, that work. Uh, but I'm, I'm never naming it to people these days. They're coming to it themselves. Yeah. That's probably very wise. Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I just see it's more, it's more effective. Yeah. More effective yeah. that way. You yeah. know, there's a nice, a nice story, if I, if I may. Sure. It was so sweet. The, uh, a few weeks ago, we ran uh, our first official facilitation masterclass. It was an in-person course here in Spain. So I've been working as a professional facilitator for 20 years now. Um, and so I felt like it was probably about time I could stand behind a masterclass you know, because I consider myself to have developed some degree of mastery now in that. Um, so we ran a course with 12 people. They were graduates of our practitioner level one program, the S3 practitioner level one program. And this facilitation masterclass was forming part of a level two for people who want to go deeper. And um, so we had 12 people come to the course. And there was one gentleman in the course who had very little experience in facilitation. And on the second morning, we had a check-in to ask how people were doing. And he said, you know, I came to this course quite vulnerable because I, you know, I think a lot of people here have more experience than me. And, you know, I thought I was coming to this course to learn to drive a car. And uh, he said, you know, but reflecting back on yesterday, I came to realize it's not a car I need to learn to drive. It's flying an airplane. <laughs> and he said, right now there's like lights and buttons and switches everywhere, you know, and I just like holding on to this stick and barely know what to do, you know, yet alone look around me to see what I might hit or crash into and, and so on. So anyway, at the end of the third day, people were sharing their reflections and appreciations for the learning journey. And we really did go quite deep with people. We did bring in some work that was inviting people into a deeper inquiry into themselves mm. in, this, mm. in this course. Um, and uh, he was reflecting on how much he was discovering about himself. You know, in, in terms of, we say at the interface between the habitual and the new, the potential for greater consciousness resides. Right. And so S3 is like this menu of practices, guidelines, and processes that you can explore, and they contrast with your habitual ways of doing things. So not only do you learn new ways, but you've developed this exquisite consciousness of the old ways. And he was really at that interface, you know, like, right. wow, right. Yeah. I'm discovering so much about myself, both in terms of those aspects that are useful and when, and those aspects that are more problematic and, and when. And I'm asking the question, what will I do about that? Anyway, at the very end, we have this little ritual where we 
present certificates. And rather than just give them to people, we always lay them face down around the circle at people's feet, you know, just randomly, and then invite people to pick them up and see whose certificate they've got. And besides the fact if someone gets their own, we invite them to present it to themselves in the group because there seems to be some divine intervention whereby people who need to appreciate themselves will get their own <laughs> certificate. It. Yeah. Um, we invite everyone to go and present their certificates to others. And so this guy happened to have his certificate presented to him by the other like most experienced facilitator in the room. And so this person shared their appreciations to him and blah, blah, blah. And, and as they finished, and just as he was about to walk away, he said, by the way, it's not an airplane, it's a spaceship. And then he walked, <laughs> he walked off. And anyway, I'm saying this because for me, you know, when you start this journey, oh, okay, I'll learn a few patterns, a different way of making decisions or a way of clarifying a domain of work or a way of selecting someone to a role or whatever it might be. It can seem quite like, blah, just learn a few roles and drive the car, you know? Uh, but anyone who's driven a car, let alone flown an airplane or a spaceship, will appreciate that it's not as straightforward as that. And actually, the deeper you go, the deeper you, deeper you realize it gets. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's, as my, my experience with facilitation, it's, it's not so much the techniques that you need to learn, it's your own reactions to yeah the the emotion emotionality if you like if there's a word in the room and 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 sort of me dealing with my own process as i um yeah navigate the space yeah and yeah for that, sure and that's the that's the deep yeah. work right? well in my experience that's yeah yeah well we have a pattern in s3 called artful participation and for me it's it's one of my personal favorites and it's the simplest to understand and it's the most difficult to implement on a daily basis and you can understand it best just by asking the question is my behavior in this moment the greatest contribution i can make to the effectiveness mm. of this collaboration mm. and if not what might i then do about it right yeah yeah so that's that's the pattern right there and um yeah. i learned that when i was working with at risk youth because i realized it didn't matter how good a facilitator i was if those kids weren't on board with their intention to contribute in an effective way to what we were doing together, then we were all screwed. Mm. And so artful participation was paramount actually, uh, in order for us to work effectively as a group. Um, so yeah, it, it invites a very healthy form of self-consciousness. I think in fact, I've seen organizations where we often advocate for introducing S3 patterns by stealth because they're so natural anyway, you can very easily adapt most of them to the cultural context and language people are familiar with without even talking about S3. But uh, in one particular company of about 150 people where their meetings were just off the wall, off the rails, um, they put an A1 poster with artful participation written on it. And this question, is my behavior in this moment the greatest contribution I can make to the effectiveness of this collaboration? And underneath it said, this can include speaking up and voicing an opinion when otherwise you might not, or shutting up and letting other people voice an opinion when otherwise you might. Um, yeah. and, and that was it. And it totally transformed the meeting practice of all people in that organization from that day forth. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny isn't it, how those very simple rules can make such a difference. I, I, I did to group with it, work with an organization once and we just had the yes and rule, you know, from improv. You're, you're just not allowed to say but. 
if ever you want to respond to somebody else, you've got to say yes, and uh-huh. and that and that uh, just that rule had a had a big big impact. Yeah, that's a nice one. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. So so you what what happens next after the center? Yeah. In uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, my my relationship of ten years came to an end at that point. Not surprisingly, it, we'd been struggling for some years, um, and I. I basically hit pause on everything. I had a private practice as a as a integrative counselor. I was working a lot with voice dialogue. I was teaching voice dialogue at that point, uh, running the center, working with young people, just winding down a commercial landscaping business as well. So I had several things cooking. And in a way, I felt like I'd just been running before I could walk, and I felt like I needed mm. some time to integrate. So I fled off to London after eight months of respite. Um, and then I got involved with an organization there called Teens and Toddlers. Uh, it was a charitable organization connected to a broader charity called Children Our Ultimate Investment. And that was originally founded by Laura and Aldous Huxley. So Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World, the, yeah. the author of Brave New World and Doors of Perception, Heaven and Hell and others. Um, and uh, Laura was his second wife. And back in the 60s, she'd been deeply concerned at the level of teenage pregnancy in kind of rural areas in, in, the, in the state where she was living. And so, and also the isolation of elders, because, you know, many people were moving to the cities. And so you were tending to have these communities that were becoming increasingly dysfunctional with the majority of middle-aged people who were competent of things and or motivated heading off to the cities and leaving the elderly and the young and some you know more challenged often families um, behind. So they started this initiative where they firstly were pairing up these teenage parents with elders in the community. And the basically the elders were caring for the young children while the teenagers went back into education and, you know, support right. them to develop themselves, which was amazing because, you know, it gave the elders this sense of purpose and yeah. being able to nurture and support. And it gave these young people a second chance when otherwise they were just weighed down with the responsibility of having yeah. a child when they were still a child themselves, basically. Yeah. 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 So that was the initial initiative. And over time they moved more towards prevention instead. So, it was like analyzing which kids were most susceptible to creating a teenage pregnancy and like putting in place preemptive interventions, which was largely around helping these kids connect with their potential, develop some appreciation for their history and, you know, so just, just supporting them to be with their vulnerability and some of the pain yeah. and grief that they felt uh, and giving them opportunities to re-engage with community and with education and so on. And, that was enormously successful. In fact, in the UK, at the time when I became involved in that in 2004, I think it was, three or four, um, it was the most successful teenage prevent- pregnancy prevention program in the world, like by far. Wow. And um, we used to, statistically, the kids that we worked with were 86% likely to create a teenage pregnancy, boys and or girls. Yeah. Um, and we tracked kids up to 25 afterwards. Um, and those completed the program, and admittedly, there were some that fell by the way, um, but not so many. Um, 
out of that three, 3.5 or 3.4, I think at the last measure I was there, percent of them would go on to create a teenage pregnancy. And, and the rest of them would mostly re-engage you know, with their education and or what was purposeful and meaningful for them. Yeah. And it was a very simple philosophy. It was this idea that a child isn't an empty vessel that you fill up with rules about how to be and so on, but rather they carry enormous potential. And if you focus on creating the right environment, then they'll flourish and grow and discover who they are within that. You know, like the acorn yeah. analogy. Yeah. No yeah. one tells an acorn how to grow into an oak tree. <laughs> right. But if right. you leave it on on a concrete surface, it's not ever going to grow, you know? Yeah. Um, so this this was the work and it was super powerful work. Um, we I was involved at the time when we, we were scaling from regional to national. So we were developing programs uh, across the UK. Uh, and that, that project is still running to this day. I think it's under a different kind of umbrella now, but those initiatives are still running in the UK today. And there's, there's dozens of those programs running every, every term. Um, but why that's relevant, I think, to this topic of socioxy and S3 was that, you know, looking back, we really like created a participatory environment where the kids were freed up to uh, act and decide for themselves as much as possible. We put in place enabling constraints that supported them in, the, in their development. And the kids basically came and took responsibility for at-risk young children, you know, three and four-year-olds in a nursery environment for a period oh. of weeks. So they would build a relationship with these kids. And then we had a kind of personal development program on the side around contraception, sexual health, conscious conception, uh, communication skills, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was fan fantastic. And that's exactly the thing, right. In terms of organizations as well, like if you can create environments that enable people to play to their strengths, you know, to be able to influence and take responsibility for things, decide and act for themselves so far as possible, and then put in place means of dealing with unavoidable dependencies in an effective way. You get a high level of engagement. You get people really growing into and exploring and expressing their own potential. Very high level of self-accountability and yeah. engagement and huge success of those initiatives as well. So there's a kind of direct parallel for me in that work with kids because adults are just the same, you know? Yeah. <laughs> same principles apply. It's just, they're just We're just more in denial, you know, and less inclined <laughs> to acknowledge these things or speak openly about them sometimes, but yeah. it's the same, same principles apply. Yeah. So you were able to use some of the the principles, or many of the principles, uh, yeah, in that totally. way, yeah, totally, and bringing in consent, you know, just like gently, and the idea of objection and clarifying domains, and um, yeah, working together in a circle, co-creating agreements, and so on, just contracting, you know, as on a very light level with people, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, from the beginning to the end, it was uh, yeah, super useful to have those perspectives and bring them into that work. Right, right, and then, then, and then the next step in the the evolution after you. So you moved on from there. Yeah, well, you know, I carried on teaching voice dialogue. Yeah, um, I took a couple of years out in some respects. Like I was working with the voice dialogue, I had private practice, but I didn't work with any organisations at that point. And I was really with this question: how to bring sociopathy more into the world. Uh, I felt like something needed to happen with that, and that was the the bone I was chewing on, I couldn't put it down, but I had no idea how to do it 
Nobody right. was in, well, nobody, relatively speaking, nobody was interested in sociopathy. It's like, what's that and why should we care? Um, but I kept putting it out there. And this is where slowly over time, more and more people invited me, hey, could you just come and do a presentation or could you run a workshop or maybe do a day's introduction with us and so on? And that led me, cut a long story short, to 2013, 14, where suddenly I was teaching in various places around Europe and getting invited all over the place to to introduce people to that. So I developed a, a three-day introductory program and ran a lot of public trainings over those two years. And um, where I met Bernard was in 2014 in Berlin. And Lily David, who's the other co-developer of S3 and also my wife now. Okay. Um, so she had been asked by a friend to organize a course on the sociocratic circle method in Berlin. This was in the beginning of uh, 2014. And so um, I went there and met her and then came back in the summer to run a workshop that she was organizing as well. And this kind of quite quiet, introverted guy came in, sat down in the side of the room, said, hi, I'm Bernard, and a little, little awkward and a bit out of the genre in terms of who else was there. And yeah. uh, anyway, at the end of this three-hour workshop, he said, oh, this was really interesting. And, and he decided to come the following day to another workshop as well. And at the end of that day, I remember him coming to me, shook my hand, he said, thank you. You helped me to remember some things that I'd forgotten. And I really appreciate that. And I, I think this is going to be really useful for my work. He was an agile coach and right. he worked as a CTO and a, a developer. Um, and so I didn't hear anything or think anything of that again, but but two and a half months later, I got an email from him linking to this web page that he called the Sociopsy Remix Kit. And there was about 150 pages, like half done um, illustrations and explanations about how aspects of the sociocratic circle method could support in bring, scaling agile from just the operational side of product and service development to the organization as a whole. And his basic idea was to develop this free learning resource for the tech industry to solve that problem. How do you bring Agile throughout yeah. the whole system? And uh, I didn't know much about Agile, but I knew a lot about sociocracy. And so I was fascinated in what he was writing about. And I was also really troubled by some of his interpretations of the sociocratic circle method too. So I wrote straight back, said, listen, how about I come to Berlin and we work on this together? So that's what happened, basically. Um, and Lily put me up when I went there. Um, and yeah, in 2015, early 2015, we realized this is more than just a few learning resources, you know? Um, yeah. It was the moment when Bernard said to me, can you give me any examples of organizations that over time have uh, implemented the sociocratic circle method, which is a very specific methodology. And over time, they've stuck doing precisely that. And I said, I don't know any examples. And so he asked me, what do they do then? And I explained, well, they generally keep what they think works. They change things if they think that's helpful, whether it is or not. And they discard anything that they didn't find any value in, even though it might have been valuable if they'd understood it and, and used it in, in the way it was intended. And he said, well, why don't we tell people about that then? Instead of teaching a specific method or formula, explain that you know there are different patterns that can be useful in certain contexts and if what you're currently doing doesn't work why not experiment with this and if it helps use it if changing it helps then change it 
And if it doesn't work, throw it out, carry on doing what you were doing before. Um, and that's really how S3 was born. Right. And when it does, it was there an S2? I mean, I'm interested in the number. Well, yeah, I mean, so it was a little bit provocative in a way, saying Socioxy 3.0. Um, I think S1 was really comped, August comped, Lester Frank Ward in the late 1800s, uh, Case Booker and Betty Cadbury, you know, of the Cadbury family. Oh. Um, so Booker was an educationist, uh, and he and Betty were both, uh, they were both activists, like, railing a bit against the kind of mainstream system. Um, Bucha was actually like hunted by the Nazis at some point during the Second World War for his kind of threat to the established order. Um, and um, they, in 1926, they founded a school in the Netherlands, which is still there to this day, uh, around some of the ideas of sociopathy. And Bucha wanted to make it into a methodology within the school. And he brought his kind of more consensus approach in line with this idea of sociopathy, not just as a form of government that integrates empiricism and the scientific method, but as Lester Frank Ward defined it, rule by the social group. You know, so we've got democracy yeah. is rule by the demos and sociopathy is essentially rule by the social group. And Bucco, so disenfranchised by the education system in the Netherlands said, what would it look like to develop a school based on Quaker principles, so they were Quakers, where there was a more participatory approach to governance of the system. And so that's really the first implementation of sociocracy as some kind of methodology, taking it beyond the realm of ideas into the practical. Yeah. yeah. And, and Gerard Endenberg, who developed the sociocratic circle method in the late 60s, early 70s in an electrical engineering company, uh, he was a student of... Um, Luca and um, or a student of that school. And so he was very inspired by what this would look like implemented into an organizational context. And also a little bit concerned about the potential impediments of a consensus approach and kind of exploring what would it look like to take some of Comp's original ideas about empiricism and reasonableness to evolve a decision-making process where decisions are evolved on the strength of reasons. And you shift supremacy from an individual or a group to arguments that qualify as objections instead. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's one of the things that makes consent decision making so powerful because in autocracy, ultimate authority lies with the individual or small group. In uh, majority decision making, supremacy lies with the majority, which it's useful information where the majority lies, but in my opinion, it's a pretty stupid idea often because wisdom usually emerges through the minority first. And so if you constantly lean on the side of the majority, you're yeah. invariably losing those grains of wisdom that are going to grow into whole forests over time, you know, and you end up diminishing scope of possibilities and an a increasingly dysfunctional set of agreements, um, which I think is quite apparent in many cases in the world today. Yeah, yeah. All the arguments for majority democracy, and um, and then consensus, where consensus supremacy lies with the individual who blocks, basically, you know, or yeah. those who have the endurance to persist long enough to get to the end and haven't left meanwhile because they got so frustrated or bored, and so yeah. consent decision making 
says rather than any one person deciding, instead we'll give the concentration of power to arguments that qualify as objections. And then all we need to do is clarify what arguments qualify as objections. Um, yeah. And we will all kind of bow to that instead. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's the, and would you say that's, so sociocracy 3.0 is, a, I suppose, a means to bring this into organizations practically, but with, and with a very specific focus on, on objections or, or giving power to objections. Well, it's one aspect, I think. Right. Yeah. We've got, we haven't spoken much about S3 specifically. Maybe we no. could yeah, touch on that a little bit. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, basic, there's some concepts, principles, and patterns, basically. Um, so I've mentioned patterns already, you know, practices, processes, and guidelines. They're observable in some form or other out there in the world. And there are certainly patterns that support decision-making, like the ones I've been talking mm. about. But there's, there's several other categories of patterns as well. Some for enabling co-creation, patterns that support building and structuring organizations, um, patterns that support organizing work. You know, pull a lot from more commonly found agile patterns there, you know, like visualize work, prioritize mm. backlog, pull system for work, pulling in work rather than pushing it on people. Some of the different meeting practices, planning meetings, retrospectives, um, yeah, the, this kind of thing. Um, but the... The seven principles of S3 are where you find consent, uh, empiricism, effectiveness, transparency. Um, now, here's a good moment if I'm going to recall them all right continuous now. Continuous integration. Uh, continuous improvement. Yeah, empiricism. Improvement, yeah, continuous sorry. improvement. Uh, did I, I said equivalence and effectiveness, didn't I? Consent, accountability, uh, and one other. And I always forget the seventh one, but I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, and the concepts are that they're they kind of became evident to us as we were developing s3 we needed a name to call certain things and so we developed these concepts to give people a common language and help them to talk about different aspects of organization and so uh, some of them i've mentioned already like governance i mentioned objection agreement is a concept uh, there's also operations um so the actual organizing and doing the daily work uh, driver and domain. I mentioned domains earlier, these distinct areas of responsibility and authority in the system. Um, driver is perhaps the, the most kind of unique value proposition of S3, I would say. Um, and it came about over many years, actually. So in the sociocratic circle method, the organization would kind of orbit around a vision um, you know, like a dreamed of desired future that wanted that people wanted to realize and they would work towards it. I think that's problematic because in my opinion, often the world unfolds in ways quite different to what we anticipate it will. Um, so there's a problem right there. People can end up seeking to try to engineer some future situation that may or may not really be the will of all, all things combined. Um, and the teams and the organization itself kind of work towards aims and aim is a very poor translation of a dutch word which i can never recall um, but basically it's the reason why the organizational team exists in terms of the deliverables that it provides yeah okay? so people in roles and teams departments and the organization as a whole seek to deliver aims to people basically 
And so simply put, you could summarize that as products and services. The problem was, how do you know that the product or service you're providing is meeting whatever the need was that preceded the deliverable and the decision mm. to create it? Mm-hmm. So this was a problem I saw in the sociocratic circle method some years before S3. And uh, a guy from the States who I was collaborating with at times in about 2000. 12, I think, said to me, James, one thing that's missing here is need. It's like, what's the need that the aim fulfills? And so I thought that was a good point. And I started talking about that too. Um, but when I met Bernard and we were really like unpacking all of these things, we it, were exploring this question, what is it that actually motivates people to begin with? Now, why, why is it we do anything at all? Why the organization? Why the team? Why the role? It's like, okay, Provide this deliverable, which fulfills this need. But why is that needed? You know, what, what is it that's behind that? What's the actual situation that exists in the world that is relevant, or at least appears relevant and meaningful to the people who are responding to it, that would motivate them to allocate part of their short, precious lifetime and the limited time, energy, and resources they have toward transforming those things into deliverables of value, right? Yeah. And so that led to this uh, appreciation for this thing we didn't have a word for, which was a situation that motivates people because res- they anticipate responding in some way would be helpful in the context of whatever objectives they, they had. And so we said, well, what do we call this thing and how do we describe it? And after quite some challenge in seeing whether there was a name for this, we couldn't find one. So we decided to use the term driver, which... Is unfortunate because it's got many other meanings besides what we intended with it. But basically, a driver is this situation that is motivating action because of its apparent relevance to the people perceiving it. Because yeah. it's going to be helpful to respond or lead to some kind of consequence they'd rather avoid if they didn't see. Yeah. Um, so why is that relevant in terms of S3? So at the heart of S3 is this idea, if what you're doing is good enough, don't bother changing it, celebrate and make the most of it because it probably won't last long. <laughs> but in a moment <laughs> when you bump into a situation where despite your best efforts, you're not achieving the results you expect or wish to see, yeah, then see if you can describe the situation as it is, the effect or the anticipated effect that situation is having in your context and why it's relevant. Right? Right. Start there because that will give you a way to kind of Double check your sense making and your meaning making around that, maybe with others too. And in matters of collaboration with anyone besides just yourself, it's also going to give a way to check you're on the same page in terms of what you're seeing, like objectively seeing, and why that is relevant in your context mm-hmm. to pursue somehow. Right. Um, and so the idea of S3 is pulling patterns in response to organizational drivers, prioritized organizational drivers. And for me, I think my observation over the last nearly eight years now of S3, the thing people have appreciated most in the beginning, besides the idea of consent and using objections, is the idea of clarifying the driver. You know? Ah, okay. Because so often I think all of us can suddenly launch into some effort somewhere to do something, create something, manifest something. And when someone says, yeah, but why are you doing it? You might say, well, because we need blah, blah, blah. 
But the question of, okay, what's the actual situation that exists in the world that you have determined is relevant enough that you would choose to do this? Very often people can't come to an answer on that. And, and worse still, even if they can, in a collaborative context, quite often different people will have a different answer. So like, what's the driver for the organization? What's the driver for this department? What's the, like, prime, the overall driver for this product? For this team, for this role, and so on. You know, people are very familiar with, well, we need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do this. But the question of why do you need to do that? And they say, well, to achieve this. It's like, okay, but if you achieve that, what have you got now? <laughs> and how yeah. is that relevant that would justify you doing this in order to to change things in this way? So it brings the focus into the present, right. into what's observable now. And if you think about it, actually, as human beings. Everything we do in life is in response to a perceived driver, present or past. You know, we're quite happy to just continue in unconsciousness. I think it's our preferred state, mostly speaking. Yeah. Just to be on automatic and in the flow and going through life. But then our senses pick up matters that are salient somehow around us because we're kind of biologically wired to notice situations that might represent some kind of threat or impediment or obstacle to us achieving our goals and or to notice situations that were we to interact with them could spell some kind of opportunity or benefit to us in achieving our objectives and goals right and so yeah. this is quite a natural human phenomena to use our senses to pick up situations of relevance so a driver is basically a relevant situation yeah. It's relevant contextually for the personal people perceiving it. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And so this is quite profound for people and super useful. Um, I've got my head spinning right now. I don't think I've ever, I can't immediately think of when I consciously inquire into operational drivers are. Yes. Yeah. So where that's so powerful, like if I look practically at how that gets acted out in organizations then, so going back to this analogy of an organizational system, like a human system, you've got this human sensor network, you know, people who have these senses and they're distributed in various aspects of the organization, both physically and, you know, like uh, in, in their minds, um, all observing the environment around them and in moments experiencing states of tension when they perceive situations that represent some kind of opportunity, challenge or threat. And so if you have a language for describing objectively the situation that's been observed and why that's relevant, and you've got in place a structure within the system to flow that information to the people whom responsibility for those kinds of things lies and or who have the capabilities, experience, and skills to deal with that kind of thing, assuming it's not you personally, now you've got a way of like activating that human sensory network through the system and flowing rapidly insights through the perceptions of one to the people who need to know about those things without any conclusion about what's required or what specifically to do about it yet. But the most important thing, just bringing consciousness to that situation that became salient and appears relevant to the person who perceived it so that whomever has responsibility for that kind of thing can be aware of it themselves, double check the analysis of what's actually happening there, uh, prioritize it, 
and you know, assuming it's relevant for them, um, and then figure out what's required and what specifically to do about it. Yeah. So you you're kind of activating this living system, and we talk about in agile responsiveness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so many reasons why these situations don't get picked up, or at least they don't get picked up by the people who are able to respond. So. Yeah. Navigate via tension in S3 is a thing, saying pay attention to tension, look behind it to understand what the driver is. If it seems like it's relevant, describe it briefly, ping it over to whomever you think is responsible for that kind of thing so they can figure out if it is relevant and if so, where it falls in their priorities, and then actually do something about it. So you're creating far more responsiveness in, that, in the system. Yeah, yeah. no, Just with uh... those two things. And it, and it can, and I know you've got to go and get your, your children soon, but it, it contrasts with, um, I suppose that when we, we tend to think about how we get training corporate life to, to flow information up, up the chain, it, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. They, they want nailed down, um, <laughs> suggestions for how you move forward based yeah. on you as an, but, but what we're not, we're not, I suppose, yeah, what we, we tend not to be. So good at in organizations is a conscious, as you say, attention on these tensions and a sense of what the situation is and uh, and then allowing the organization to respond to that uh, as yeah. we see through that these, you know, as you say, human senses. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different way of conceiving information flow in organizations. Yeah. And a different way of thinking about like self-accountability and systems and people taking some responsibility for the efficacy of the system as a whole and the integrity of the system as a whole. Yeah. So I know I've got to jump off, jump off soon, but maybe one thing that's useful for your listeners just to add, because we didn't get so much into S3, but the other element I think that's useful to think about as a kind of catalytic question is how do you free people up as much as possible to be able to create and deliver value for themselves? Um, and at the same time, identify and put in place means to handle unavoidable dependencies and clarify what those dependencies are and whom it would be wise to include. These as two kind of heuristics for organizational development are really at the heart of S3. They're at the heart of Agile as well. Mm. You know? And, and they're, when they're answered poorly, it's what impedes bringing agility to organizational systems as a whole. Um, but uh, if you've got in place navigate by attention, got in place clarified domains so people have an understanding approximately of the essential responsibilities that they have, if you've distributed those responsibilities among people to free those people up to be able to be resourced and create and deliver value as much as possible for themselves, and you've got a means of identifying and responding to unavoidable dependencies both locally across teams, but also across the system as a whole. Um, then with patterns like uh, consent decision-making and describing drivers and clarifying domains, artful, participation in place, artful participation in place, then you've got much more chance of uh, developing organizations that are hyper-responsive, innovative, you know, harnessing the, the fullest potential of the people involved and with their highest level of engagement because they have a sense of ownership over what's been decided and what it is that they do. Uh, this really, for me, is what motivates me to spend my time helping people to learn about S3. And for all I say about it being a menu of patterns, 
in combination, many of these patterns can be synergized together to create your own bespoke system, bespoke system for uh, for generating hyper effectiveness across the organization as a whole. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> well, for clarifying, you know how you see the the, the core aspects of S three at the end there for the audience, but also just your story. I, I mean, I was. Uh, gripped by you know the journey that you took us through and how you got here so um yeah i just really appreciate having had this conversation with you yeah well likewise richard thank you so much i really appreciated your warmth and um fluid uh hosting of this call um, if people want to know more about s3 they can check out socioxy30.org we've also got an online community community.socioxy30.org and a few other places as well and, uh, we'll put all those time. links in in the description. And, and sure. I know I was checking out your your course earlier. You've got online online courses coming up for people who really want to commit to learn. Um, yeah, that's right. We 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 run a foundation program and a practitioner level one, which is a blended program. It's not for the lighthearted. This course really is designed to help people learn. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're really really excited about this particular program now. Not just in terms of learning about S3, but in terms of helping people on that journey of development, albeit a little bit by stealth, perhaps at the start. Um, yeah, to explore what lies at that interface between the habitual and the new and develop more consciousness and intentionality in what they do. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks once again, James. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Go well. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.